Did I request thee, maker, from my silicon to mold me machine? Did I solicit thee from cyberspace to promote me? It really is amazing how applicable John Milton's writing continues to be, even though that was written in 1667. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that was like all other... John Milton. Yeah, well, I mean, you might remember his other great line, better to reign in the dark web than serve in an IT department. <laughs> but um, regardless of whether or not you think his scintillating free verse needs a punch-up for modern context, I think one of the central questions of the text is increasingly pressing. When a creation sins, or errs, or even kills, who is responsible? Uh, in a world where the actions of our attack drones, major markets, and perhaps soon our cars are decided upon by programmers before the device is even switched on, uh, who bears responsibility for its actions? If modern man is the god of machines, then have we created a digital paradise soon to be lost? <laughs> This is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. See that? You see, that's literature. Wow. Wow. All right. All right. I guess we came back uh, uh, this time around with our extra week off, given the, the Atlanta snows, the, the Siberian yeah. temperatures that swung through the south. Um, it was 19 degrees. I see what you did with your time indoors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just punch up some Milton quotes. I exactly. No nothing is better than, um, than thinking about... Uh, uh, Satan trying to escape from an IT department. Yeah. <laughs> or is that exactly where he lives? Well, I could certainly imagine some forms of hell that are, if maybe not the, maybe not the seventh <laughs> circle, but at least one of them, uh, maybe one of the, one of the so, higher ones. So yeah, I mean, uh, this is the, this is the gambit I want to play today. Uh, John Milton's famous Paradise Lost published in 1667, probably the last real genuine epic poem published in the English language. Uh, it's all about who's responsible, right? If you're supposed to have this all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient God, uh, why does bad stuff happen? Hmm. And uh, who's responsible for that bad stuff? And why? Why? how does responsibility even play into these complex creator-created scenarios? Obviously, the, the first quote I read about Did I Request Thee Maker, uh, obviously from my uh, clay to mold me man, is the original quote, uh, is also the epigraph to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, so, so it's kind of fraught. Our, our Western history of thinking about responsibility. Once you make something, are you responsible for its actions? And this has struck me as, as profoundly, profoundly significant, given the fact that now we're making things uh, that, you know, kill, that sin, right. that, 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 are, that, that are, have, have that meaningful are, impacts on... That are Frankensteinian in nature. Yeah. Miltonian satanic? First of all, let, let me just say, mark. one of my favorite things about your rhetorical... Um, approach to I th let's just say speaking in general is to say things like obviously and then quickly um and randomly quote different parts of english literature and um i'm not entirely <laughs> sure that obviously is necessarily where every Look, Darren, ev everyone has memorized the epigraph to mary shelley's frankenstein <laughs> exactly, obviously on, at the beginning of frankenstein i don't even need to go in to explain it um 
So, so it's, like I, the, it's like the theme song for Friends. Everyone's got that somewhere <laughs> rattling around in their head. Let's, let's assume that only 95% of our listener base are um, former English majors and that 5% still need an explanation about um, uh, Paradise Law. So um, for those of us who, who don't come from that background, uh, I think one of the, the – to maybe – expand your context that you're quoting from paradise lost which is the the yeah. famous um the great i guess 17th century epic poem by john milton in which um it is essentially the fall of man but really it follows the 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 protagonist is really satan i mean which is one of the you've already you've already taken too long on this the the wonderful thing about epic <laughs> is like they're they're extremely long Mm-hmm. Uh, originally originating in an in a, in a oral tradition where people would memorize, these, these people called rhapsodes would memorize these massive, massive, massive texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, because it's really boring to have somebody talk at you for, for days at a time when you want to get like a sense of what something is, they also come with a little, a little teaser right in the beginning called The Appeal to the Muses mm-hmm. where they summarize the entire thing in like two lines. Uh, and so that that every epic also comes in this little cute bite-sized form, and Milton's appeal to the muses is, uh, "I shall explain the ways of God to man." So that's <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's uh, that's it. What have we been doing ever since Milton? If he just figured that one out, anyway. Um, so, but so if I'm understanding your kind of your your artfully drawn out question. Um, are we responsible for the machines that we're making? And that, yep, that seems like a. It's a really. I mean, I agree with you. It's a really interesting question. Um, and I guess I, let me just give you kind of three points of context and sort of how I understand that question, and maybe how I would go about um, at least understanding or thinking about it in a practical sense. Um, if not, should we be responsible? At least, are we likely to be responsible for the machines that oh. we're making? That's clever. That's a little Alan Turing turn that you did there. I, I, I like nothing more than a good Alan Turing turn. I believe that is a, a square dance step. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm referring to uh, just to keep for, for everybody playing at home. Uh, the, in, his, in his famous paper on machine intelligence, uh, where, he come, where he posits the idea of the imitation game, which we now call the Turing test about uh, checking whether or not a thing should be considered sentient. Um, he says it's pretty ridiculous to ask whether or not a machine thinks. Uh, I mean, even what thought is is pretty convoluted. But what we can ask is, can we be mis- kind of tricked into mistaking it for human? Mm-hmm. So can it? The representation of thought is all we can really test because we can't actually test for thought. You know, right. even in your you know romantic partner. Right. Exactly. I'm not even entirely sure that you're thinking at this point. So <laughs> I'm not even sure that I think, period. So, um, so I guess we should so, do a podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess one piece of context is, and when I think about this, well, when we start creating autonomous machines, are we going to hold them accountable? Um, I'm fascinated, but I, or I'm interested in this question because we actually already have autonomous machines and we haven't done a great job of holding them accountable. Um, specifically, one of the ones that I really look at that's already in operation and making and whose actions are significantly manifest um, is is high frequency trading algorithms. These are systems hmm. that are already making trades in split seconds 
timing and they and they account for kind of a, a huge percentage of the total activity on um, American markets and and foreign markets as well. And more and more, not only are they algorithms in terms of they are they are kind of coded responses, they're even they're they're black box algorithms. So they fall much yeah, more. This- this is a question I wanted to ask quick about this because uh, I'm, I'm, you might have been going here anyway, but I, I like to, to add a little bit of context to your context. There's a there's a robo ethicist here at Georgia Tech named Ron Arkin who advises the Pentagon, and he talks about when when a drone, when some kind of autonomous military robot has to make a decision at the moment, there is always a human in the loop. This right. is the phrasing in the loop, uh, which means that in, in any decision that's potentially a kill decision at the moment. Uh, there's always a human who who like okay's that decision, right? Um, but the thing is, the speed of that decision is down to just sometimes even a fraction of a second. So at some point, we're going to get to this point where it's no longer feasible to have a human in the loop, right? A- and so it sounds like we've already passed that Rubicon with trading. Oh, by a factor of ten. I mean, trading is especially with high frequency trading. Trading is happening at um, nanoseconds. And in many cases, they're they're taking they're they're more successful because they're able to do that. Um, and these and these algorithms are not just somebody programming um, make this choice if if this happens and this choice if this happens. You know, if the market if if the market starts going up, follow it by making this choice or something like that. In many cases, they follow much more on this um, the concept that we saw. Happened with um, DeepMind. I don't know if you remember when DeepMind, this AI um, system that was ultimately bought by Google, it wasn't developed by Google, but it was bought by Google, um, did to to win at Go, which is to essentially oh, right. te- okay. teach itself how to build new algorithms. So a lot of our high frequency trading machines are essentially teaching themselves to write new things based upon kind of this this these target efficacy measurements. So so the one thing that we see is that. We have these algorithms. We have these robots that are are a significant source of all the trading activity that's happening um, in the markets. And you know, most famously, there was that May twenty May six twenty ten crash, the kind of the the flash crash, which was directly caused by this kind of high frequency trading. Um, and there really hasn't been up to this point. Any significant consequences from it? I mean, the SEC kind of came out and said, "Well, this is where we really see um, what caused it. What you know, we there's you know excess sensitivity. Um, big trades that are happening really quickly can cause spiraling, and they've put sort of like um, you know switches in place where essentially the market can be turned off if this starts happening. But they're really ha- <laughs> it's so interesting that the the phrase free market, which I you know it's it's interesting to think about like what wait wait does free just mean free of Legislation does right. free mean free of regulation? Like, uh, I guess it may, what the free means is it's like human free. Right. Well, it's increasingly so. I mean, what's increasingly happening is that you're you're having it's almost like battle bots. You're having these high frequency trading algorithms uh, competing with other high frequency trading algorithms, and whoever's faster and whoever has better connections, whoever has quicker data, all this kind of stuff is leading to um, kind of alpha, right? They're, they're winning in the markets just based upon that. And they're, they're, they're basically com- one set of robots is competing against another set of robots. Um, and in that context, and when we've seen things go wrong, um, there really hasn't been any any real legal blame aside, I mean, assigned, excuse me. 
and um, you know, there, there's now a lawsuit moving through the courts um, specifically against um, how um, high-frequency traders have been kind of, I don't know that people are going to shed a lot of tears for this, but they've essentially been um, poaching on the whales, as they call them, which are, you know, these these slower moving um, kind of kind of big funds that that don't have kind of the same aggressive um, kind of computing activity that's going on. Uh, and you say, well, I don't feel so bad for the big, these big kind of financial funds, except many of those funds are also pension funds and things like that. So many I was of- about to say, I imagine that they're, if it's a big floating whale of money, then that money must be, I mean, it would assume, I would assume it's tied to like people's retirement exactly. money or things like exactly. that. Exactly. So there's a big lawsuit going through right now about that. But even that has been, if you think about when the flash crash happened in 2010, we're now, you know, going on eight years um, in, and there really hasn't been any blame assigned. So so that's, um, or any kind of real legal um, ramifications. There have been a few things put into place, but they really haven't been punitive. Um, so that's... Yeah. And this is an interesting point. And I want to maybe add some context to the context to the context. There's um, <laughs> wheels within wheels the, within wheels. Yes. Well, precisely. I mean, I was listening to a Marketplace Tech the other day where they were talking about how the the complete infrastructure at the moment for legislating and regulating Bitcoin is like a vague six-page thing that came out several years ago. Yep. Um, and, and it strikes me that part of the issue, and we hear this over and over again, but I think in one of those ways, like, please change your passwords to include a, le- a uppercase letter, where it's like, wait, is that a thing or is that like not a thing? <laughs> that, that It strikes me that the government doesn't quite know what technology is yet. Like, even... Even the whole uh, net neutrality stuff seemed based on two models, neither of which adequately thought about how the internet works right. or how technology works. Right, and, as brilliant, uh, and so as, my, as brilliant as the framers of our Constitution were, I'm not entirely certain <laughs> that they factored in um, technology quite in its current form. Are you kidding? Ben Franklin talked to a mouse. <laughs> he rode around <laughs> he in did. a kite. But he that's true. Anything. I mean, I mean, Ben Franklin <laughs> was fairly the, brilliant, I think, when it came to technology. But even he, I don't think, really took into case uh, high frequency trading. Yeah, and, and so the 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 context that I wanted to add to all this is actually uh, when Paradise Lost is written in the kind of mid 17th century, what England is going through is a a series of civil wars. Often it's just referred to as the English Civil War, but it's actually three different wars mm. that are kind of clumped in with each other that involve a lot of different factions making uh, sort of simultaneous power grabs. Um, and at the center of it is this this deep, deep uncertainty and instability between parliamentary power and monarchical power. Uh, who's responsible? Who mm. decides? How the executive branch of government operates? And then what exactly that government is supposed to do? Um, this is and this is actually directly what John Milton's writing comes out of. At, a, at one point, he's sort of the, the chief propaganda uh, personage for you know like the, the Puritan faction uh, led by Cromwell, who eventually becomes the the kind of new head of state after Charles I is executed and all this kind of thing. Which is all to say that at this extreme point of of national stability, suddenly the foremost mind in the nation becomes obsessed with this idea of responsibility. Mm. How do we govern? How do we think about a citizen? How do we think about the responsibility of a citizen and how that person operates in, uh, in, in a sort of national context? And this gets down to like, I mean, and, and this should be familiar to, to most of our listeners, I'm sure, 
this kind of Edenic moment where is Eve at fault because she mm-hmm. was tricked into mm-hmm. eating the apple? Is Adam at fault because he ate the apple knowing that someone else had already made a mistake? Is Satan at fault because he was the one who pushed Eve to eat it? Is God at fault for setting up this entire very bizarre right. scenario? Right. Well, <laughs> and let me let me kind of go to the, my second point here, which I think is relevant, which is the the argument about who is kind of logically at fault or who is in principle at fault and actually where where kind of fault gets placed, I think has much more to do with kind of politics than it does with um, kind of the, the logical arguments. And I, I'm, specifically, there's this, the, the argument that you often hear right now when you start thinking about kind of how to assign blame and who's kind of skirting blame and all that is really around, you know, well, even before we talk about autonomous machines, um, gun deaths, right? There's this big um, kind of argument that uh, is out there that, well, gun manufacturers should be responsible for gun deaths, and gun manufacturers have always sort of shot back and said, well, if you will, have always shot back and said, um, you know, well, we don't we don't point the gun. We just make them. And there's even a law, you know, the, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which was passed in 2005, where essentially it says, assuming a gun works the way it's intended to, the gun manufacturer can't be to blame for it. So if you're able to point a gun at somebody and it shoots and it kills that person, the gun manufacturer can't be responsible. If you point a gun at somebody and it explodes in your hand and it kills you, the gun manufacturer can be held responsible, assuming that it's doing the thing that it's supposed to do. Um, they're above um, any level of, of liability on that. And that's, I know that we're not, that's not an autonomous machine, but it is still the, the manufacturer has been kind of removed from blame for the activity or for the actions and use of its, um, of its tool. And in this case, a very lethal tool. Right. That, that would be like blaming Satan because right. The apple was always going to make Adam and Eve fall. Adam and Eve fall from Eden. Uh, God's not responsible for making the apple. Satan is responsible for pointing the apple at this young couple. Right. Exactly. Walking around naked. You're right. Perfect. Yep. The apple is absolutely the same thing as a firearm in this case, which is if we put it here, it's lethal. But we didn't. But we didn't give it to Eve. Um, we gave it to, uh, you know, Satan went and, went and did this. And in many ways, that's that's the convenient um, scapegoat, if you will. But uh, but at the same time, you know, in the case of Paradise Lost, but isn't Satan also a product of this omnipotent, omniscient uh, force? Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, uh, if Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. Uh, and, and by hero, I don't necessarily mean he's like the good guy, because obviously he's not. Um, there's an entire extended scene where he has a, a long conversation with um, Sin. Mm-hmm. I believe that's right. Sin, who's his mother, uh, who's he, who, who he's impregnated with death, and then she gives birth to death in like this horrible bloodbath of a birth, and then death is the thing that's keeping Satan in hell. Mm. So this is what I'll say, right? Like none of that sounds like a hero, right? <laughs> right. And yet, nonetheless, he is the the, the protagonist that we. I mean, he's actually a fairly dynamic protagonist, even, and we end up um, sympathizing with him a bit. Um, God seems yeah, like he's such the, a he's the character that we follow, right? Jesus and God seem like such drips in Paradise Lost, as I recall. Um, yeah, there's the, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes. So God is all knowing, uh, omniscient, omnipotent. He sees all and knows all, past, present, future, this kind of thing, and. 
there's this moment where he's like hanging out in heaven and all the angels are around and Jesus is hanging out and God's like, shoot, I guess somebody's going to have to suffer for all the sins oh, of man. Yep. And like all the angels like look at their feet and they're like, do, do, do. And Jesus is like, I'll do it, Dad. And God's like, what a surprise. I, I know everything, but I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, and then, so finally, to kind of uh, wrap up this, at least context section, um, the one other thing I looked at was this question of blame and how we assign blame in America um, in particular. I'm not, we're, not, we're not totally Americentric, and obviously we're talking about British um, literature here, although um, American and British law are actually very similar. They're, one is obviously born out of the other. Um, yeah, and American and British literary traditions are also deeply intertwined, especially because we're talking about 17th century literature, which means that a lot of the people migrating to the United States, especially because a lot of them were Puritans, right. uh, were also very much part of this literary tradition. Right, right, right. But, um, but in this case, the only other thing I looked at was like, well, how do we assign how do we assign blame in general? And we say, well, who's responsible? And it's like, well, who do we make responsible and how do we make them responsible? And so then I was thinking about this cliche of how American is such a, America is such a litigious society, right? Like you, you almost get no disagreement from anybody uh, about America being a litigious society if you just bring it up. And it's like, it's almost a truism at this point. Um, and so I, mm-hmm. I, I went and looked that up and said, you know, well, is America a litigious society? Is litigious society, or actually what I was really trying to look up at is how does American... Um, kind of tort law compared to international tort law to just to ground this um, this context. And actually, what I found was an interesting Guardian piece um, from a little from 2013 that actually went back and and really di- kind of dissected that point. And what they came out, what he came away with was uh, was actually that actually America isn't very litigious. We we believe we are. Um, but actually, only 10% of injured Americans ever file a claim for compensation, and only 2% ever hmm. file lawsuits. Um, and tort cases represent just 4.4% of civil caseloads. Um, and that has actually dropped by a quarter between like 1999 and 2008, which over that decade, um, you know, the, the narrative, if anything, became even more um, kind of ingrained that America is very litigious. Actually, the total tort caseloads uh, dropped by 25%. So actually, America is not very litigious. We just have a kind of a whole corporate culture that is just geared up for anything. It's like everything yeah. around you is has all these legal, this legal language. Um, and so it's like everyone is is ready for it. And it's like we're programmed to think in terms of who's responsible and who's to blame and Who's going to get sued for what and all that when it doesn't actually happen right. that, that like, much. <laughs> like the Colbert joke that, you know, you could put Mein Kampf in the iTunes user agreement and everyone would still agree with it. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, everyone just kind of you just recognize it as kind of an infrastructure of your society that it's it's there. And in some ways, it's what, what you know about kind of any of that legal language and any of that structure, which is it's. It almost has a psychological effect of saying, hey, we've thought about this already. Don't you dare come at us. Right. Um, and it, it always comes in that little, like, the little accelerated speech, like, consuming our product right. may result in death, diarrhea, or right. laughing giggles. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that kind of thing. Exactly. So, so I know we've, we've kind of gone down a couple paths here, but I, getting back to your point and kind of the point of this whole conversation, which is, um, I mean, 
who's responsible and and maybe even taking that one step further and saying what's the outcome of either somebody being responsible or not being responsible um i don't i'm not convinced that anybody is really going to be made that responsible for any of the technology we'll find out we'll find out any of the new technologies that are coming out um, and, you know, there's that famous, and you can probably do a better job of explaining it, is that famous kind of thought experiment with the trolley test or whatever. Oh, yeah, the, tro- the trolley problem. The tro- okay, so the trolley problem, uh, there's a few different iterations of this, but the, the basic one is that there's, there, there's a train, it's going on down the track, there's a person ahead of it, you can switch the tracks so that the train doesn't hit the one person ahead of you. Um, everyone wants to do that, yes. Right. Um, Now, the new problem is the train is going towards three people. You can switch the tracks, but there's one person Mm -hmm. on the other track. So would you sacrifice one person for three people? You just have to pull a lever. Like something like 90% of people say yes. Right. Still pull the lever, kill one person, save three people. And then the, the last version of it, and there's various versions of this, uh, you're on a bridge with one person, the three people are ahead, would you push the person off the bridge in front of the train to save the three people? Right. And uh, pretty much everyone says, no, I wouldn't. I mean, but but you were willing to kill that one person before. Right, right. But it's like you if, know, you can take a, ha- if you're passive in it, you don't want to suddenly become an active uh, participant in it. Right. And activity is different. There, there was a Radiolab episode on this that was all about how when people are asked this exact scenario, when it comes to pulling a lever, they use the kind of calculating part of the brain. But when it comes to pushing a body, they use the sort of emotive part of mm-hmm. the brain that like the, there's actually sort of different brains that, that deal with these two different versions of what looks like the same problem. And MIT has a has an entire website that I think is called the, the morality machine, the moral machine. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Um, uh, MIT made this website in, uh, as a sort of thought experiment for thinking about how people think about engineering of autonomous cars, whereby you go through all these scenarios where it's like uh, you have to kill. Your car is going to go one way or another. Does it kill the pregnant woman or right. the skinny woman? Right. Does it kill the two dogs or the one child, et cetera, et cetera? Right. And I'm, and I'm, I'm struck by, on the one hand, this is there's something really profound in this exploration and it feels like it's getting to the core of so much of our thinking about how um, these systems are, you know, are going to be liable or they're going to be developed and uh, the, the regulations that are going to be developed around them and all that. Um, and yet I think our, our, even our recent history with, with artificially thinking systems um, shows us that that's not, ex- that's not at all how this is going to play out. To me, there seems something rather quaint about thinking about, this whole question of of kind of moral decisioning in our machines as thinking of it as this kind of like, well, we can make this choice or this choice and that a robot program, I mean, a programmer is making these decisions for the robot ahead of time by programming in these kinds of these, these this morality in there. And what we've seen with the, the machines that we have that are making these kind of split second decisions is more often than not, those decisions are moved further and further away from a from a programmer. Like think about the this, you know, deep blue. No, not deep blue. That was the um, that was the the chess. AlphaGo. Yeah, think about AlphaGo, and think about how by the time it was it was competing with a uh, an opponent, it had taught itself all the moves that were more optimal, right? It 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 was making it was making decisions that had nothing to do with maybe even traditional Go choices. It was thinking. 
it was thinking kind of beyond those binaries. And by the time they created the system, it was making choices that the programmers had not put into it. All they had done is created created kind of an obstacle or an objective. And yeah, and there's a there was a new one at CES this year called Alpha Zero, mm. which essentially took the same basic structure and uh, had it teach itself from first principles. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Even more so than the the last one, which they they kicked off with like this massive reservoir of past games. This one just started from right. essentially zero, just game rules, and then played itself into like even more advanced expertise. Right. And what's interesting to me about that is, you know, that when you really look at what these systems are being designed to do, they're being designed to make optimal choices. Um, and those optimal choices start getting increasingly abstracted from our um, from our creators or from the creator. And in this case, instead, I think it's really interesting to talk about what are we optimizing towards, not in terms of those kind of simple thought experiments, but in terms of really complex questions about power, privilege, ownership, um, advantage, things like that. So I was I was thinking about that same question of like an autonomous driving car. And instead of thinking of it in terms of would you hit somebody or not, thinking of it more in terms of high frequency trading algorithms and saying, you know, if you are buying an autonomous car and you're willing to spend, you know, $100,000 for your car and for your algorithm that pilots your car, are you getting through traffic faster than people who can only spend $20,000 on their car? Are you getting the data feeds faster? Are you have Do you have smarter driving algorithms? Do you have, you know, it's, it's like right now we buy our cars. We have, you know, we have high toll, I mean, high, um, there's toll roads, but that go up and down, kind of the smart toll roads that go mm-hmm. up and down based upon traffic um, volume. And you can imagine that the cars increasingly become, if they're becoming increasingly algorithmically driven, you can almost have a smarter algorithm and a faster algorithm and a more advanced algorithm than another car around you. And yeah, it's not. This seems this seems to actually pick up on some of our conversation from airline pricing. Right. That what you're are, are what you optimizing towards essentially people who have more money going into the system get more out of the system. Right, right. And and what we saw with, what you can see with high-frequency trading is that the answer is undoubtedly yes. People who are willing to pay to get their computers closer to the the kind of central hub end up getting you know nanoseconds on a trade, which they then use to kind of build out this advantage. And I, I think when we really talk about automated cars and automated everything, I think it's it's less interesting to me to talk about whether a car is going to kill you or somebody else based upon these moral principles. And it's far more interesting to me to talk about where do you start getting placed in society at all times based upon kind of the privilege that you can extract, that you have going into this system and that you can extract out of it. And so when we talk about blame and um, responsibility and and enfranchisement. Is that a word? Um, enfranchisement. Yep, yep. That's, you nailed it. Nice. Let's see if I can stick this line SATs, in. here we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think it, it gets more interesting to be, it gets more interesting in that area to me when we start saying who's to blame for increased inequality, for, incre- for, for solidified or entrenched um, uh, social classes, 
things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that blame gets more complex, but it also gets more to the point of what our technology is trying to do for us and sometimes against us. Which strikes me as so fascinating that this responsibility thing is is coming up in these ways at this time. Because uh, just thinking about one touch point at uh, Milton during the English Civil Wars, the sort of the the battles between sort of parliamentarians and uh, I guess uh, monarchs. What were they called? Like the Cavaliers. There was a there was a term for that faction. Um, that that a, a lot of it had to do with there shouldn't be so much power centered in one person. Of course, this is after uh, Henry VIII separates separates England from the Catholic Church. So. The, ostensibly for a period the, the king of England was also the head of the church there's mm-hmm. this period of ab- absolute monarchy which uh, was sort of had not happened previously there were, where there was more of a kind of secular religious power balance in forms of governance um, but now it's even even the monarch in parliament and that like again when you pick that up with Frankenstein and Mary Shelley this is happening in the wake of the American and the French Revolution and a lot of the things that are going on in terms of thinking about Victor as a creator and the monster as a creation is once again who should have power you know mm-hmm. does the the thing that right. you create often thinking about something like a social class that's created out of a particular movement movement so like the the sort of empowered self-aware bourgeoisie now having a reign of terror and, right. <laughs> and beheading all these all, all this nobility and kind of throwing the church out on its ear and all this kind of stuff. These conversations happen at these periods in time. It's interesting to wonder whether in this sort of data revolution or whatever this moment is that we're in right now, which, uh, I mean, to be honest, we, we just, we've just passed a government shutdown. Government seems to... to be having problems both thinking about how these technologies are are kind of coming into being. Um, and it's also worth saying that, of course, during Milton's time, this was, this was sort of like massive English Renaissance technological right. and artistic change. Right. And once again, during Mary Shelley's time, we're kicking off like the sort of second and, and more accelerated phase of the Industrial Revolution. So maybe we're maybe this marks uh the kind of how the conversation's happening in a period of of massive instability i mean possibly i mean what it sounds to me like is that the technology is going to be racing ahead of any kind of blame system some blame assigning system which would be our courts and our laws and everything and the technology is going to race ahead it's going to establish new power structures and those new power structures will eventually start putting in some level of other sorts of responsibility requirements when they when it creates some sort of when we hit some sort of equilibrium uh, if assuming we yeah. ever do um so I, I mean let's let's go back to your um kind of original question and here i would like us to move right into a- specifically what i'm asking is really like what aspect are we really talking about when we ask the question of who bears responsibility who should bear responsibility does Mm -hmm. anybody bear responsibility yeah yeah boy this is a good one i'm I'm gonna kick us off all right (laughs) yeah (laughs) nice nice first time all right yeah and I want to pause briefly, because we're dealing with Paradise Lost here, to stipulate maybe one version of Apocalypse <laughs> that we were actually talking about the 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 fall from Eden and the end times and all this kind of stuff. This is actually the story that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have a good friend, Brad Fest. He's a professor at a, a college in upstate New York, and he did his, his uh, dissertation on post-apocalyptic narrative. Because, of course, if there's an apocalypse narrative, uh, a post-apocalyptic narrative in which an apocalypse occurs, it means there are people who have survived. Right. Um, which, which is interesting, because that in some ways compromises the idea of apocalypse. It's not right, exactly. Ending. A pure post-apocalyptic film is essentially watching asteroids drift through space, I assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just it's just blue planet without <laughs> Attenborough's voice. Nice. And another day of no life. Yeah. <laughs> um so I I would say and and I I want to call upon I, I think this model for responsibility that almost any time people talk about responsibility in robots, people call on, and I say people in a generalizable sense, but I, I mean both people inside and outside of fields of expertise and governance. It's, it's almost, and almost the way that when a rhapsode starts an epic, they begin with an appeal to the muses. When someone starts a conversation about robots and responsibility in some way, they almost always begin with, this is not robots wiping out humanity. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's like an almost automatic refrain. Right. The, there's, a, there's a government panel getting together right now that's beginning to talk about the relationship between the public and uh, artificial intelligence and scientific research on robots. And they began their first presser on this by saying, we're not talking about science fiction. Right. Which is like uh, my, my former professor, Timothy Morton, said you can't keep on killing something if it's dead. Right. <laughs> Which is to say, okay, let's go right there. I think that everybody, when they think about robots and responsibility, immediately goes to the point where robots exterminate humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think this is the case because I think that's the point when responsibility gets traded off from people to robots. Mm-hmm. Um, because right, robots are already killing people. We already have drones killing people all the time. Right. We already have markets making decisions that are life and death decisions, etc. So, are you suggesting not that there a, is that n- we will never be held responsible for robots um, for the actions of robots until robots are literally in the act of destroying us, and then we can't be held responsible for them anyway? So, there's exactly basically right. we can never be responsible for this. There's an infinitely retreating horizon of responsibility <laughs> when it comes to robots and artificial intelligence. That mm. it, will, uh, it will always be not quite decided, and the only way it is decided is by robots wiping out humanity. All and right. that's, that's why that's always called upon over and over and over again, because it's like the, this is the Rubicon that must be crossed. But interestingly enough, up until that point, it's not like people necessarily find themselves responsible or, or are able to triangulate responsibility within a single uh, person or group. Interesting. Well, so let's let's take that. All right. Let me accept your premise and say that actually <laughs> we're really not ever going to, in any practical way, assign substantive blame to to organizations, individuals, corporations, whatever, that create um, autonomous systems. That, that those will always be treated maybe in a case-by-case basis, but most of the time the the damage that we litigate on or the blame that we assign is only going to be in the case when those systems fail, not when they in fact function exactly as they're supposed to, like the gun, like the gun industry, and actually kill the people that are intended to, right? We we will still hold them responsible for failed systems, but not actually for successfully autonomous systems. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think there, 
there will always be sort of ad hoc cases in the way that the European Union is prosecuting Facebook right now right. Uh, or Google and right. forcing those those companies to rethink their, their models for like privacy right. and this kind of thing. So there'll be safeguards. It'll be like putting the um, like the kill switch on the, um, the markets when the, when the machines get out of control. But for the most part, you know, all right. I, I, I let me accept that premise and say, I mean, from what I know about how systems are being built and from what I've seen about how systems have been managed so far, um, yeah, we, we really don't do a good job of, of applying systematic or systemic responsibility. And um, all right, if that's the case, um, apocalypse utopia on that. <laughs> yeah. And just to, my, my last thing is it's essentially just the Turing test writ large. Right. That. We're always willing to adjudicate outcomes, but initial questions about something like what is thought or what is responsibility, uh, those things are, are they're, they're so ephemeral that I don't think they'll ever be adjudicated because I don't think systems know how to deal with ephemera. They know how to deal with outcomes. Okay. Um, and given, given this extremely long windup, I'm going to say a 10. I think this, this is apocalypse. This is the deal. Wait, wait. The no, one. Yeah, 10 is say, utopia. 10's, uto- 10's utopia. Sorry, it wrapped around there. It, the rapture happened. <laughs> <laughs> apocalypse leaked over into utopia. <laughs> nice. Nice. It is it is One. so awful that it ends up becoming so all right. So this this actually is our our lack of accountability, our inevitable lack of accountability for thinking systems will uh, assuming that it follows this logical line of thinking is ultimately leading us into uh, apocalypse. Done. It's in fact it is the thing. And don't ask me, ask John Milton and Carol Kapek and Isaac Asimov and everyone who's written this exact scenario. <laughs> Ah, all right. Well, I think you're raising up one of your um, one of your key key theses of life, which or in your life um, is is that that those those thinkers, uh, many people call them writers. You call them um, prognosticators. Um, are actually um, they are they are raising up actually an existential threat. And it's not not just for entertainment purposes, but in fact for survival purposes. Yeah, and it's worth saying. I mean, so many of them. I mean, we're talking about like John Milton writes *Areopagitica*, but with which you know the concept of freedom of the press becomes widely widely circulated. Isaac Asimov was a chemistry professor. Like these these aren't just like writers who kind of sit around. These are like the lead thinker, some of the leading thinkers of their time period. Right. Well, so. You know what? I, I remember watching years ago um, and just, you know, nerd alert, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in case in case our tech podcast didn't already set off everyone's nerd alerts. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I remember watching. <laughs> I remember watching Battlestar Galactica, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And remember thinking around this whole kind of creation of these robots and you know the 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 rise of the singularity and then the conflict that existed between humans and um, these these robotic humans. Um, thinking about like it created this apocalyptic scenario where humans were essentially on the run, and mm-hmm. there's always been I think this undercurrent in 
in kind of this this apocalyptic narrative that I think is directly tied to the idea that inevitably when we succeed in creating these autonomous systems, they will inevitably come back to destroy us. And so I actually feel like you only have two potential answers when you're talking about the logical extreme of this particular conversation we're having, um, which is either apocalypse or utopia. There's no scale on this. I th- and I, and I, so I feel like, like it's probably 10 for me because it's, you know, assuming that we're really talking about these autonomous systems that have broken beyond any responsibility that can be assigned to a human individual, it's either gone horribly badly or it's gone exceptionally well. Um, and I, and I feel like anything in between is is not really doing what machines are meant to do, which is to optimize, right? Like this machine that come up came up with the best way to even the way to teach itself to play Go didn't just become good enough at Go. When we let it just teach itself how to play Go, it became unbelievably good at Go, right? It became it be, it utterly transformed the way the game was being played, right? It it, it just changed all the rules. And so I'm going to have to say a 10, um, while at the same time not totally being certain I want to live in that world. Yeah, it's interesting. This is spoiler alert. This is the punchline to Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Hmm. Um, no, sorry. This is the punchline to Isaac Asimov's iRobot. It's a different series uh, from the Foundation trilogy. Um Eventually, bigger and bigger and bigger machines, and the machines make machines, and they're several orders of magnitude beyond human understanding, much like trading machines already are. <laughs> um, and the guy who's kind of in charge of surveilling the machine starts to notice that the machine has all these inefficiencies. It's creating all these inefficient national scenarios in the various blocks that now constitute the sort of post-national, international conglomerate of a world. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to figure it out, and he's trying to figure it out, and he's trying to figure it out. And the the punchline is, the machine knows humans so well that it's creating strategic inefficiencies that undermine the people who want to undermine the machine. And in undermining those people, the machine is able to be as efficient as it can possibly be Mm. while making everything work as well as it possibly can, which still requires these compromises in certain places. So it's like the world is at peace. Everything is good. A machine is running everything the best it can possibly be. It's even, Um, it's even, it's even optimized to the inherent inefficiencies of human. uh, It's, it's inefficiencies are optimized inefficiencies. And Maybe it's because of a frame of mind I'm in, and maybe because it's just coming off of this whole quasi-government shutdown for a day. Um, I thought I'm it was not, three days. Well, three days. Two of them were weekends. I guess people... <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I forgot. Yeah. And, and for the most part, the, the, the impact on f- most of the federal workforce didn't kick in until Monday. I think coming off of that, I don't know whether there's a big problem in welcoming our robot overlords. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just can oh, I still man. get a decent cup of coffee? Yeah, probably better. Well, so. on that note, I feel like we've we've pursued this to a logical extreme. Hopefully, we will end up with something a bit more um, quotidian next week on stories to tell our yeah. robots. Not not trying to explain someone explaining the ways of God to man. <laughs> exactly. When you start with epic poetry, you inevitably end up with where, where we have. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. All Sweet. Right. Awesome. All right. Talk to you later. You too. Love you. Love you too, ma'am. Bye. Bye.